Welcome to the Chris Wallace Chronicles. All right, you don't know who that is. Okay. He lives in Australia now, but he lived in Hollywood before Australia and New York before Hollywood. You know, the actor, the songwriter. He was at ringside for the first Ali Frazier fight, Liza Minnelli's date one night. He used to smoke weed with Morgan Freeman. Likes to tell stories, like this one. The sign on the arch over the front gate read, U.S. Army, 66th Counterintelligence Corps Group. In a small circle at the top of the sign was this, Wallace Barracks. I thought, isn't that nice, a welcome mat? Nah, I'm just kidding. I still have no idea who that Wallace was. This place had originally been an old German cavalry post called Große Reiterkaserne. It was now the headquarters of all CIC units in Germany. I should say West Germany because that's how things were then. It didn't take long to forget about being a day's drive from Delaware, Ohio, because everybody in our outfit traveled. This was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Plus, we were spending American dollars in a place that had been ravaged by war. Not just Germany, but most of the rest of Europe, too. And if these guys showed ingenuity avoiding KP at Fort Holabird, they turned it into an art form in Stuttgart. Before I got to Stuttgart, black market was a dirty word. Okay, two dirty words. Here, it was a lifestyle. When anyone went on leave, which was often, first, they changed the military script that we used at the PX and the local EM club into greenbacks. Second, they would get whatever the limit was on gas coupons. These gas coupons allowed you to buy fuel for your car while traveling anywhere in Europe. The third thing was to stock up on American cigarettes. All three were, let's say, negotiable. You could sell dollars for German marks, French francs, Italian lira, Spanish pesetas, or whatever, and get a very favorable exchange rate. Very favorable. The gas coupons are the same. Petrol was expensive for the average European. They could give you top dollar for the gas coupons and still be ahead. We could buy cigarettes by the cartons. The profit margin there was unbelievable. While I was there, one guy bought a new Mercedes convertible, another bought a Carmen Ghia, another a Porsche Roadster direct from the factory in Stuttgart. Another bought 12 place settings of Royal Dalton China, complete with serving bowls and teapots, all by nefarious means. And remember, we were the elite good guys. But to these good guys, business was business, supply and demand, all that capitalistic stuff. I was too much of a goody-goody to consider any of that, at first. But even I did it once on a trip to Italy. I sold gas coupons and tried to sell cigarettes, but got hustled like a greenhorn by some teenagers at Piazza San Marco in Venice. I didn't even try to do it again after that. The first trip I took was to Vienna in October. I don't know why I picked Vienna, but off I went. When I was in high school, one of my buddies went to Europe with his uncle and sent me a postcard. I remember being thrilled just looking at the stamp from a foreign country. Now, here I was on the Orient Express on my way to Austria. I went all through the Schönbrunn Palace, spent hours in a Viennese cafe eating pastries, reading papers, and drinking coffee. Went to the Prater, mostly because it had featured in an Orson Welles movie, The Third Man. Had no trouble getting a ticket for Tosca at the Vienna State Opera. 
One afternoon, I was walking along the street, and this odd-looking guy came toward me. He looked like an out-of-work musician, balding, longish hair, nondescript overcoat. When he got next to me, he whispered, Stay out of the Weinstubas. There are Russian agents everywhere. Then he disappeared into the crowd. Obviously, people didn't have much difficulty spotting an American GI, even in civilian clothes. That trip to Vienna opened my eyes to a world out there that I could easily have missed. To paraphrase Shakespeare, some are born to travel, some achieve travel opportunities, and some have travel thrust upon them. I had it thrusted, and I was hooked. But I hadn't anticipated my next trip. One afternoon in November, the lieutenant who was in charge of personnel came into my office and took me aside. Your dad died. We'll get you on the next plane we can to the States. If my dad was dying, they'd have been able to give me emergency leave. But because he was already dead, it wasn't an emergency anymore. A couple of days later, I was on my way. We stopped in the Azores to refuel. The weather locked us in for another day. When I finally got to Ohio, it was a day after my dad's funeral was scheduled. To be honest, I was glad. I've never been interested in seeing anybody dead. I prefer memories of them being alive. But they postponed the funeral till I got there. I was obliged to look into the casket. It looked like a plastic copy of my dad. I can still see it. I fucking hate it. When I got back to Stuttgart, my buddy Marvin came up to me. He worked in personnel. While you were gone, I gave you a little present. What? Let's just put it this way. As far as your army records are concerned, you've never taken any leave. What? I changed your records. You've got two months leave. Enjoy. And boy, did I. I went back to Vienna over Christmas. Somehow I got myself invited to the American Embassy for New Year's Eve. I was telling this woman that when I saw Tosca in October, something strange happened. The soprano came out for repeated curtain calls. The conductor joined her for a couple. But the tenor never showed. I had concocted a story for myself that they didn't like each other and refused to appear together after the performance. This woman laughed. Yeah, that was in the papers here, she said. Here's what really happened. When Cavaradosi gets shot by the firing squad in Act 3? Yeah. Well, when he fell, he must have landed bad because he was knocked out. So while Tosca was taking curtain calls, they were trying to revive him backstage. But I like your version, too. For the next ten months, I traveled. In February, three of us drove south to Genoa, and then along the Italian and French Riviera all the way to Marseille. We went to the casino in Monaco, up into the hills above Nice and Cannes, to Villefranche, to a restaurant called La Baie, where I had beef bourguignon for the first time and haven't forgotten it yet. I had to leave some of it which I still regret. The two guys I traveled with were like night and day. Let's call one of them Bob and the other Michael. Bob was the definition of bohemian. He was from Idaho. Michael was a nice, boring, corn-fed boy from Iowa. How Bob got to be so out there coming from Idaho is a mystery to me, but he was. He spoke French, German, and of all things Hungarian. None was his native tongue. He just picked him up. It was his idea to take this trip. While Michael and I stuck out like sore thumbs, Bob 
blended in. So by osmosis, I was exposed to the Riviera in a way I'd never been able to on my own. Bob was our tour guide. He suggested most of the places we went to. They were all fascinating. When we got to Marseille, he took us to a French whorehouse. I'd say brothel, but this place was definitely a whorehouse. The women there loved him. They laughed and kissed and frolicked with him like he was a long-lost lover. Michael might have gotten laid, I don't remember, but I was too chicken. Bob also led us to a very dodgy bar on the waterfront. No sooner had our beers been served when in walked the U.S. Sixth Fleet. I don't know how long those swabbies had been at sea, but they came in with an attitude. The last thing we'd want them to know was that we were G.I.s. It would have turned the place into a saloon brawl. Bob wanted to stay and drink with them. Michael and I prevailed, and we got the hell out of there. Back at Wallace Barracks, Bob disappeared every weekend, and no one ever knew where he went, or what he did. He had it down to a science. He'd put his army clothes in his locker, along with all his bedding. He'd stash his bunk and mattress somewhere, and off he'd go. When they came around for bed check, since there was no bed there, no one could be missing. When he got out of the army and went back to Idaho, he became an insurance salesman. Go figure. From then until I boarded a troop ship in October, I went everywhere I could. At first, I traveled with other guys. Four of us drove to Amsterdam together. Two of them were nice boys. Shuff and I couldn't wait to go window shopping in the red light district. We both made purchases. We drove back in a snowstorm that dropped 38 inches of snow in 19 hours. I was driving, and one of the guys was leaning out the sliding roof, wiping the snow off the windshield with his hand. That's how thick the snow was falling. The wipers were useless. Three other guys and I drove up to Copenhagen, then on up to Stockholm. I got my first lesson in fidelity in Copenhagen. I went by myself to Tivoli Gardens, where I met a lovely young Danish woman. We drank and danced, and then she took me back to her room. We had to go up a fire escape because men weren't allowed. As I was leaving, she informed me that she was getting married in two weeks and needed a fling. I felt so used. Nah, just kidding. It was great. A few days later, the four of us were in a bar on the top floor of a hotel in Stockholm at midnight. It was June. You could see the sun just on the rim of the horizon. The sun at midnight. From there, we drove farther north to Sundsvall, then across Sweden to Norway. The road was clear, but there were still walls of snow on either side of it. Then we drove down through fjord country to Oslo. That was a great trip. All the other trips I took were by myself. I went to meet up with my Fort Chaffee buddy Jim in Paris. His roommate was giving us a lift to Jim's car. The roommate's girlfriend was visiting from the States. On our way to Jim's car, this roommate introduced us to his girlfriend. When he couldn't remember my name, I said, Chris Wallace. She turned from the front seat and said, are you the Chris Wallace? She had gone to some camp during college and met a girl I knew at Ohio Wesleyan, who it seems never stopped talking about me. I never even dated this girl. I went back to Paris another time after Jim had rotated back to the States. I met a family in Luxembourg that knew my brother when he was in the Army in World War II. Spent a couple of days at the Brussels World's Fair, 
took a trip to Berlin. Berlin was a divided city at that time. It was isolated in the middle of East Germany. You couldn't drive there. You could only get there by military aircraft, and you could stay at a transient barracks as a guest. Berlin has always been unique unto itself. It was then, too. You could go anywhere you wanted in the French, British, or American zones, but the Russian zone was a no-no. West Berlin was bustling. New buildings had been erected since the end of the war. The only remnant was the Kaiser Wilhelm Church. Its ruined tower was left as a reminder of war. GIs were allowed to take a tour of the Russian zone. That is, most GIs. CIC guys risked being arrested as spies. So naturally, I wanted to take the tour. Now, mind you, this was a sanctioned Russian tour. It showed you the good stuff. The brilliant boulevard Unter den Linden was renamed Stalin Alley in the Russian zone. The bus took you along this thoroughfare that was almost devoid of people. The few you saw looked gray. In fact, the whole thing was like going from Technicolor Oz back to black and white Kansas. It could have been a Hollywood set. There were these facades that suggested new construction, but you could see actual rubble behind them. You didn't even want to wonder what the rest of it looked like. I got my brother to sell the Chevy that was sitting back in Ohio and send me the money. I bought my first new car in Stuttgart. You can see him in old movies set in Paris. It was made by Renault and was meant to be competitive with the VW Beetle, the Dauphine. It was so cute, I loved it. You can Google it if you want to see it. I drove that car through Switzerland and into Italy to Milan, Venice, Florence, down to Rome, and across to Bari. In Milan, I missed seeing Maria Callas sing Tosca alla Scala by an hour. I already told you I got hustled in Venice. I bought a beautiful leather wallet in Florence. Okay, I've always wanted to tell this story, so this is as good a place as any. I had that wallet with me when I lived in New York. One day, I had to fly down to Florida on business. I took my jacket off in the cab, and the wallet must have slid out of my jacket pocket. Sometime later, at NBC, a mutual friend introduced me to the person referred to in my house as the other Chris Wallace. We had known of each other, but never met. So he says, oh, you're the other one. I said, that depends on your point of view. Have you ever received mail addressed Chris Wallace, New York City? He said, no. I said, well, I have. Then he said, did you get your wallet back? My wallet? Yeah, he said, a woman contacted me and asked if it was mine. She found it in a taxi. I figured it was yours. I always thought he could have accepted it and tracked me down a lot easier than she could, but I guess it never occurred to him. I never got the wallet back. Okay, so I drive my little black dauphine down to Rome. The highlight of the Eternal City for me was a restaurant called Hosteria dell'Orso. I had a meal there that was so good that years later, when I was on my way to Nairobi, I stopped in Rome overnight just so I could go back there. The reason I drove across to Bari was to get a flight from there to Athens. Growing up in Delaware, Ohio turned me into a Midwestern boy. But in the Army, I was exposed to the world and felt a compulsion to visit my mother's family in Greece. They had migrated there from Istanbul and before that Bulgaria. My grandmother, whom I only knew from one photo my mother had, had lived in Alexandropolis. My mother had a sister and brother who were still there. I was the least Greek Greek you'll ever meet, 
But something in me just had to see those people and know them. I was intimidated by the idea. I didn't really know the language. Whenever Greek friends visited us in Ohio, they'd speak to me in Greek, and I'd answer in English. But it was in there somewhere, and I needed to discover it. I spent one day with them in Alexandropolis. All that travel, all that exposure, all that adventure, that wanderlust, changed my life, literally, figuratively, and forever. I'm Chris Wallace.